This is Howard Tierski, author of Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in or you'd like to learn more about, send me a connection invite on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. But, and this is important, make sure to include a message with your connection invite telling me that you're a marketing book podcast listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer. This episode is sponsored by Ahrefs Webmaster Tools. What if I told you that you could monitor your website's SEO health, backlinks, and organic rankings at no cost? You can with Ahrefs Webmaster Tools. It's a new, very advanced, and easy-to-use free SEO tool that will scan your site and prioritize precisely what you need to fix to improve your search results. And it's so easy to use... Even a podcast host can use it. Check it out at ahrefs.com slash A-W-T. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com slash A-W-T. I'll tell you more about it in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Howard Tiersky to talk about his book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, published by Spiral Press, an imprint of Cranberry Press. Howard Tiersky has been named by IDG as one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers to follow today. As an entrepreneur, he has launched two successful companies that help large brands transform to thrive in the digital age from the Digital Transformation Agency and Innovation Loft. His dozens of Fortune 1000 clients have included Verizon, NBC, Viacom, Avis, Universal Studios, Crayola, Morgan Stanley, Condé Nast, the NBA, Visa, and digital leaders like Facebook, Spotify, and Amazon. Prior to founding his own company, Howard spent 18 years with Ernst & Young Consulting, which became part of Capgemini, one of the world's leading global consulting firms, where he helped launch their digital practice. Howard speaks regularly at major industry conferences and is proud to have served on the faculty of the NYU Tisch School of Arts, his alma mater. And interesting fact, Howard is an avid scuba diver, having logged more than 500 dives over the last 20 years. Howard, congratulations on winning digital customers and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you, Douglas. That was a heck of an introduction. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Please feel free to take me on the road when you do public speaking. So another. I thought you were going to say to go scuba diving. (laughs) We could do that too. There's lots of things we can do. But another interesting fact I got from reading the book is that earlier on, after school, you you started out in theater. Indeed. Tell us about that. Well, that was my uh, passion, and I'm still very passionate about theater. Um, But my uh, education was uh, to be trained as a theater director. And I got out of school and was doing that professionally, but uh, you don't make a lot of money as a professional theater director, particularly when you're right out of school. But in parallel, I had done a lot of work around uh, digital design, which was another another 
passion of mine and something that paid a lot better. And, um, you know, what I discovered was as that was when the world of interactive entertainment was just really becoming mainstream and, you know, we were making CD-ROMs and DVD came along and of course the internet. And as that became a more viable medium to create engaging experiences, I found myself loving so many of the same things I loved about theater in this interactive realm, storytelling, working with creative people, combining technology together with with the creative side of things, uh, all these components. And so ultimately I wound up focusing almost all my energy in the what we used to call the interactive world. And today I guess we would call the digital world. And so I'm now just a theater goer, but not a professional in the theater industry. Well, it's a great background. And I say that because I recently interviewed uh, Jim Gilmore, about the latest edition of The Experience Economy and a, mm. a famous book, and at least half of the book is about modeling a theater as it relates to creating experiences for customers. So come as no surprise to you. But what a book. I can see why this Thank is you. a Wall Street Journal bestseller, almost 400 pages, extremely well-written, beautifully illustrated, and it really... Uh, resonated with me because of all the scars I have from over the years, <laughs> having watched right. or, or been involved in some of the things that uh, have kept companies from uh, transforming digitally or just uh, transforming, because some of these things are uh, somewhat universal. But I've got to say for the listener, uh, as you write in the book, half the value of this book is online at winningdigitalcustomers.com. But you need to buy the book to get the passcode, people. But it's, it really is amazing. You've got all of these um, videos and spreadsheets, pre-formatted spreadsheets, PowerPoint slides on every chapter of the book. So even if you wanted to talk to your management or somebody about one of the many, many things in the book, you've got some slides to get them started. And you've got um, templates for a lot of the deliverables described in the book and even uh, additional eBooks that have like additional techniques. So basically you're, you're sharing all your recipes <laughs> and everyone's yeah. going to consume them and then say, oh, I guess we do need Howard <laughs> to come in and, <laughs> and help us with that. So I, I see what you're doing and I hope it works. I hope it works even better for you. So let me just uh, read one quick thing from uh, the very beginning of the book. This book is a blueprint for earning love from today's customers, who I like to call digital customers. And it is a treatise on the idea that obtaining that customer love is the single most important factor in the success of your business. So Howard Tierski, I'm going to ask you a question, and we're going to talk about that a lot because you talk about it throughout the book. What is love? <laughs> Howard, what what is love? What tell us what, what do you mean by this? Yeah, what is love? Well, you know, we use the word love a lot of different ways in the English language. I mean, I love my wife and I love my car, but not in exactly the same way, of course. And you love your kids. Yeah, and I love my kids and and you know, I I love Starbucks, right? And 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 so the the way that we use it in the book and the way I mean it here is is you know the way that I love Starbucks the way that people love Apple or Disney or Netflix or Amazon or any one of a number of other brands which which have a loyal following of people who really feel passionately about that brand of course there's no brand that everybody loves there's people who roll their eyes at all of those brands that I just mentioned as well but that's fine because you don't need to appeal to everybody to be a successful brand in fact that's rarely a winning strategy. But um, that's, that's really what we mean by love. 
is when a consumer has a strong desire to be connected to a brand combined with the faith that that brand will take care of them and give them what they need in whatever domain that brand focuses on, whether it's luxury vacations or toilet repair. Right, right. Well, you had me at the very first story you told in the book, and it was about Toys R Us. And <laughs> I, as a kid growing up in Northern Virginia, I remember going to one of the very first Toys R Us stores. And then later, uh, when I was an account executive at J. Walter Thompson in Manhattan there, one of my accounts was the Toys R Us account. <laughs> mm, and you talked cool. a, and you talked about you know, their decline, which, which I wasn't responsible for. Let's be real clear about that. <laughs> but w- explain what you mean when you say Toys R Us died from a lack of love. It certainly wasn't from me, their account executive. Well, the thing that made me uh, have that epiphany that that was really why Toys R Us died, because there were plenty, if you read, if you Google, why did Toys R Us go out of business? There's plenty of articles and pundits. And so the common theories you'll hear are things like, well, they had too much leveraged debt, and uh, the you know the rise of downloadable video games really hit their revenue. And I mean, those are all legitimate problems. But hey, let's face it, every business has problems. But um, no, it was really my, uh, at the time, six-year-old son, Joseph, that really helped me understand why Toys R Us went out of business because he's actually the one who, who first texted me <laughs> in our family group chat the news story when it broke that Toys R Us had declared bankruptcy. And I saw it on my phone and I... I thought, oh man, I bet this kid is devastated. Uh, so I, I went and found him and I said, hey, you know, how you doing? I saw your note, you know, how do you feel about this Toys R Us bankruptcy and that the fact that they're going out of business? And he said, oh, I don't care. We can just get whatever we want from Amazon. And I thought, you know, when six-year-old boys don't care whether your toy store lives or dies, that is your most fundamental problem. Because when I was his age, like you, I did love Toys R Us and, frankly, lots of other brands that are gone r- right now, like Kodak, my Kodak Instamatic camera with a flashbulb, you know, my Atari, and and on and on. Yes. So let's talk a little bit more about love, Howard. You see where sure. this is going. In the book, you write that there's uh, three primary factors that are common across love brands. They meet the needs of their target customers extremely consistently. Mm-hmm. They periodically do things that delight customers beyond their expectations and needs, and they stand for something that resonates with their customers. But isn't that the same as loyalty? Well, you know, the word loyalty is used in business today in a very particular way, and it's to describe a behavior, and that behavior is repeat transactions. If I go to the same gas station and fill up every day, or I fly the same airline all the time, then those businesses call me, quote unquote, loyal. And that's good that that I'm loyal. I mean, that's something that they want, right? They want customers that engage in that behavior, repeat transactions. But the thing is that the fact that I engage in those repeat transactions could be for a variety of different reasons. And maybe that that's just the gas station that's closest to my house, or that's the airline that just happens to have 6 a.m. flights and I need to take that flight. I might really despise that airline in every other way. I mean, maybe not. Very likely, though. Well, yeah, because I'm on it at 6 (laughs) a.m. No, because it's Um, an airline. I'm sorry. Oh, well, you know, well, listen, you know, just like in every industry, like, I mean, you're right. There are certain industries where more brands, more brands than not get less love, but- you ever flown Virgin Atlantic, right? 
Yeah. And there are other airlines and I'm hearing more and more. I don't fly Delta often, frankly, mostly just because it's not the most convenient airline for me usually, but people who fly Delta regularly, they, they love Delta. Delta has a lot of love. I'm a United flyer less because I truly love them and more for, you know, convenience. And I live not, you know, in the New Jersey area. So Newark airport is the most convenient airport for me. And of course that's one of their hubs, et cetera. But, um, so I think, you know, people get confused because the word loyalty, you know, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's kind of like the word love. It can mean a lot of different things. We talk about the loyalty of a soldier on the battlefield, his, you know, his commitment to his, his comrades in arms. I mean, that's all fine and good, but that's not the kind of loyalty. That's not how we use loyalty in business. And so, and so I think it's important to acknowledge that what, what I'm talking about is emotion. What I'm talking about is a feeling that your customers have about your brand. And so that's just totally different. It's connected to a behavior, but it's not the same as a behavior. And so we want to, we want to really make that distinction. And so I think the best, the best word for it is love. Yes. Let me just quote from one other part of the beginning of the book. You write, you can't buy love, but you can inspire it by ensuring that you follow the love formula, meet and occasionally exceed the needs of your customer, including, but by no means limited to, giving them a great deal, and stand for something they care about. Of course, the devil is in the details. What are the most important needs of your customers? How do you determine if you are meeting them consistently? What extra things would delight your customers? What are the values that your customers find attractive? It may sound like a puzzle, but if it is, there's an answer key in this book. There are proven methods to answer all these questions, and we will cover them in detail. And these are questions that must also be studied on an ongoing basis because the answers are not static. That's why so many once-beloved brands are now gone. At one point, they were meeting and exceeding their customers' needs, and they stood for something customers cared about. That's how they became beloved. But when their customers' needs or values transformed, the brand didn't change or didn't change enough, and that broke their customer love formula. So, Douglas, I couldn't agree more with everything (laughs) that you just said. That was genius. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know I was quoting from the book, just so let's let's be clear. (laughs) Oh, is that from my book? If I I read these, (laughs) yeah, when I read from the book. You and I are on the same wavelength, baby. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's what I do. Like I read the book and then I ask the author questions about it, which apparently is doesn't happen all the time. But if I read the really good parts of the book, someone might think I'm that smart. So, b- mm. but let's go. Let's go. Let's talk about the obvious thing, or maybe not so obvious, and that is to to keep the love. You have to change with the times. Okay, I'm sure everyone's heard that, but explain what specifically is changing at such increasing velocity. Well, you know, there's always things changing in the world, right? Uh, society is not static. Culture is not static. Technology is, you know, for centuries been evolving and providing new new ways to meet com- a customer's needs. Like slicing but, bread. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you talk about that. He talks about that in the book, listener. I do. I do. It was only about 100 uh, years ago that they started. Anyway, we can get to that later. Yeah, yeah. The best thing since, since sliced bread, right? Um, so yeah, but, but if you look over the last 10 or 15 years, I think it's hard to deny that even though there are many things changing in the world, that the pace of digital revolution has just been unbelievable. And if you think about the fact that it was only about 10 years ago that you could, for the first time, download an app to your iPhone and where we've come since then and how the digital world in particular, the mobile device and the pervasive connectivity that we all have and the, you know, wide range of applications that 
that really have transformed how we work, how we date, how we learn, transformed healthcare, financial services. I mean, I mean, it's really, it's very difficult to find an area of life that hasn't been not just influenced or touched by, but radically transformed in terms of how we go about doing all the very things that make up our lives. And there's lots of studies that have been shown that, you know, uh, there's, you know, there's 80% of the U.S. population has a smartphone right now, and 71% of them sleep with it by the side of their bed. People look at it typically on average over 100 times a day. And uh, when they ask them fun questions like, you know, if you had to choose between giving up your phone or having to take no vacations or having to work an extra day a week or things like that. Or giving up sex for a year. Well, right. Even that, even that a third of people say that if they had to give up sex, they had to choose between giving up sex or their phone, they would uh, give up the sex. I don't know if that says more about them or their partner, frankly, but nevertheless. Now that's not uh, research just, you did personally, right? <laughs> no, no. These are just different studies, but they are real research studies. Yeah, and uh, it just shows, and I think most people listening probably have the same connection. If you've ever had a day I've heard people, I've heard this analogy used many times. If you ever had a day where you accidentally left your phone at home, so you had to go the whole day without your phone, it, people say it's, it's like they're missing a limb. You yes. know, it's like, like you're just, you know, you're just personally incomplete. What other device has anyone ever given you? I mean, if, if, if you didn't have your toaster for a day, how would you feel? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in your car, you probably would say, all right, I got to get somewhere else. Somewhere. It wouldn't affect me all day long. So it's a, uh, it's a profound uh, change. And that's why I say your customers have become digital customers. They are living a lifestyle with digital at the center. And so to your question about, well, what is it, you know, you have to be able to change with the times. I mean, the reality is if you think about that love formula that you talked about to meet your customers' needs, well, if you're not delivering a digitally elegant, truly top-notch, elegant digital experience for your customers, you're not probably meeting their needs because digital is, is so important to them. And let alone being able to delight them, you're probably doing the opposite of delighting them. You're really disappointing them. And 84% in one study, I think it was by Gartner, showed that 84% of customers believe that a lot, large number of the brands that they interact with, their our digital experiences aren't below their expectations. Yes. So there's, you know, there's, of course, some that really set the bar that people love. That's a small percentage. But then there's a much larger percentage of, in many cases, major brands that have invested heavily in delivering digital experiences, but they're just not meeting customer expectations. Yes. So just to go back to my original question, I want to, again, I want to quote, you're right. No matter what industry you are in, the most significant change influencing customers over the past decade has been the massive increase in the role digital plays in their lives. And you also write, digital is so important to customers' lives today that if you aren't delivering an excellent digital experience, you are also quite likely not aligned with their values. But there's a massive gap. <laughs> you say 84%, yeah, Gartner, 84% of digital experiences do not live up to their uh, customers' expectations. And KPMG survey said 96% of organizations were embarking on some phase of digital transformation. Uh, but 84, a Forbes article said 84% of transformation efforts have failed. Are you sick of your competitors outranking you in search results? 
Wish there was an easier way to get more Google traffic? What if I told you that you could monitor your website's SEO health backlinks and organic rankings and then get clear and simple advice on what to do to fix it so you can increase your website visibility on Google for free? With the new Ahrefs Webmaster Tools, you can do it. They'll help you quickly improve your site's Google visibility by showing you over 100 technical issues that might be holding back your site's search performance, as well as how to simply fix them. Plus, the tool shows the sites that link to you, so you'll know your most linked pages, and the keywords your pages are ranking for in order to tweak your content and increase your monthly organic search traffic. This used to be something reserved for professional SEOs, who had special knowledge and access to expensive tools. But now you can do this in minutes with Ahrefs Webmaster Tools for free. And this isn't one of those 14-day free trial offers. It's a super powerful tool that'll do a full website audit for you and keep working for you for free. You know, when you realize just how valuable this free tool is and how much it can help grow your business, you might want to think about showing your appreciation by sending the host of the Marketing Book Podcast a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. Something to think about. Just putting it out there. (laughs) I'm kidding. Not really. But seriously, we've been using Ahrefs at my firm for years, and I'm delighted to have them back as a sponsor. Check out Ahrefs Webmaster Tools at ahrefs.com slash AWT. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com slash A-W-T. I'll also include the link in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com and include a video that shows you how it works. What about you know the the company? I mean, I've got some clients like this. They say, "Oh, come on, we're we're old school." I mean, is it is it possible for what you refer to as analog classics to transform successfully and earn love in a digital age? Oh, there's no question that it's possible. And I, I mean, you can point. There's examples all around. The New York Times, HBO, Federal Express, Walmart is now the number two online retailer in the United States. There's no question that it can be done and it has been done. And in fact, and I've you know had the good fortune to be part of some really successful transformations as well as some colossal failures. And I probably learned even more from the failures than from the successes. But uh, And that's really where I got all the kind of experience and knowledge and insight that, that went into the book. But it's certainly not the majority of companies that have really gotten to the promised land that have successfully transformed Many of the companies that have benefited the most from the digital economy have heretofore been companies that have, were sort of born digital, right? Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, Uber, Airbnb, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think that that's changing. And we're now seeing some of the companies that I mentioned earlier and others that really are giving them a run for their money and sort of finally taking advantage of their scale and their power and, and, and getting digitally savvy enough to be able to really be compete toe-to-toe. Yeah, you write, uh, in addition to Walmart, HBO, FedEx, 1-800-Flowers, New York Times, companies that have really been very successful. Starbucks Trans- has been, you know, doing yes. amazing things. Yes. So let me give the listener a, um, an overview of the five steps that we've mentioned, and we'll, we'll get into some of these. One is understand your customer. Two is map the customer journey. And three is build the future. And then four is short-term optimization, things you can fix quickly. Uh, and five is, is lead the change. But I want to go back to this digital transformation because my concern is that listeners are going to come into the 
conference room and say this, and maybe if it's a marketer, the CEO is going to say, oh, no, not another buzzword from that marketing person. <laughs> You're right. The phrase digital transformation is trending hot on Google right now, and it's popular to use it to describe just about any digital or technology initiative. But let's get concrete about what digital transformation really is and how to know when you see it. Howard, let me know, and I'll I'll be back in about 45 minutes and see how you're doing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what really is it? Because I, it must grind your gears for you to be hearing the term a lot now uh, when you've been doing it for a while, but also that people don't really know what it means. I mean, I, I know of some companies, and they've been mentioned on this show, it was a steel company in Germany, and they thought digital transformation was getting email. Yeah, I, I, I was interviewed for a, a, another I think it was a podcast or something um, has maybe six months ago now. And it was, I won't say the name of the company, but it was, it was a podcast associated with one of the largest technology companies. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they were interviewing me and they said to me something like, um, what do I think are the most important components of digital transformation, AKA cloud migration? And I was like, wait, hold up. What did you just say? <laughs> did you just say digital transformation is the same as cloud migration? I mean, I'm all for moving applications to the cloud. Don't get me wrong. But that was just a, that was a real quick, like parenthetical, you know, diminishing of digital transformation yeah. to the thing you're selling. You know, it's. Hardly. A bit of whiplash going on there. Yeah, right. Like, whoa, you just slid that in there in the parentheses, right? The verbal parentheses. So, um, yeah, and I didn't want to be too like, you know, I was, I was a guest on their podcast, but I'm like, well, I don't know that I'd put it quite that way. You know, and mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, holy smokes. Um, yeah, I think, um, well, a couple things. At, at the simplest level, what is digital transformation? I mentioned earlier the fact that the consumer has been changing their needs, their expectations are changing as a result of digital. So to me, you know, a lot of people talk about digital transformation in the context of, you know, like we need to, we need digital transformation at our company. Right. And, and while I, I do agree with that, I think you have to first recognize that there's a, there's sort of an outer layer of digital transformation, which is that the world is undergoing a digital transformation. And by the way, made all the more, you know, all the faster by COVID and the race to mm -hmm. digital alternatives to, to physical things that we were prohibited from doing. And so that's happening, you know, no matter what you do, right? You ain't stopping that. That's the, that's the freight train that's, that's, that's moving society forward. Um, now, then the question is, what are you doing about it as a company? And to me, the simplest way to look at digital transformation is just to say, it's keeping up, right? It's continuing to adapt your offering to your customer. And not just your customer, by the way. If you don't have a digitally elegant tools for your employees, very often you can't retain the best talent because mm -hmm. they don't want to deal with that either. So it's not only customers, but I, I always start with customers because I feel like that's really the lifeblood of a business and not to diminish the importance of employees and culture. And I believe in all that. But in the end, if you can get your customers to do what you need them to do, you're probably going to be able to have a great business. And if you can't, then no matter what great stuff you do with your employees, you know, you, you're not going to have a business because you're not going to have any money coming in. Oh, um, I agree. And and after several, a few hundred books that have been on the show, there's like this rhythm that keeps coming back. And I, I want to shout it from the rooftops, which is those companies that best understand their customers always seem to win. And you don't have to understand them perfectly, but if you do it a little bit better than the others, it's really noticeable. And it's so yeah. difficult for companies to do. And the way the pace of the writing in the book is interesting because I at the beginning, I envisioned myself 
maybe in a conference room with executives with their arms crossed saying, what, what do I got to do this for? I'm trying to run a business, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, probably yeah. the sort of thing you roll into. And you explain that, like you just said, there's three reasons you need to transform. And this, it's important to every single business. And the one was remain relevant to your customer. And number two is to gain efficiencies to be cost competitive. And then finally, attracting and retaining talent. And I hear more companies complain or bemoan the fact they can't get the right talent more than they can not get the right uh, customers. But let's talk about money because they've gone from love to money. You see where this is okay. going, Howard? So Show me the money, baby. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the money and uh, you know what the boss really wants, you know, revenue growth. Talk about if or how digital transformation affects uh, not just revenue growth, but profitability. Sure. Well, digital transformation is a lot about changing. And let's just let's just focus on the customer side for a moment. And and I could say similar things about the employee experience, but just to avoid having to say customer slash employee. Let's just think about it in the kind of <laughs> or team member. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um the you know, I have something, something in the book called the customer strategic customer experience model. And all that really is, is a fancy way of saying let's let's figure out how customer experience connects to money. And I talk about customer experience because in the end, when we talk about digital transformation, the most important aspect of digital transformation is how are you changing the customer's experience? If you think about what really makes Uber win or what makes Facebook win, or it's the experience they give the customer, the value they create the customer. Now, of course, they have to do a lot of things in the back end to make that experience happen. It's like the iceberg with the customer experience sticking above the surface of the water. But let's just think about that. And, and, and so a lot of digital transformation is investments in many things, technology, people, design, et cetera, marketing, but ultimately with the goal of creating an experience for the customer. So one of the challenges in that sort of arm-crossed scenario that you you described earlier is when you go into people who are hard-nosed business people whose job is to look out for the money. And, you know, I'm totally empathetic to, uh, for those people, by the way. That is their job. You know, if you're the CEO of a big company, a public company, you have only one job. Only one job, and it is not to make your customers happy. Your one job is to take the money that shareholders have given you and turn it into more money. That's your whole job. <laughs> yes. That's your whole job. And if you do that, then you will keep your job. And if you do not do that, you will not keep your job. And making customers happy is a strategy, a very good strategy to achieving that goal, but it is not the actual goal. And so when you speak to these types of people who are in these roles and, you know, like I say, they want to keep their job. So they may be nice people. They may want customers to be happy. We all love customers. We want them to be happy, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, it's not actually what the CEO and the CFO have been hired to do. So you have to persuade them that you have a strategy that involves creating a great customer experience that will get them what they want. Because if so, then you're all on the same side and it makes sense. And so there's a little sequence, it's four or five steps, but I think it's helpful for people to internalize it because when you understand it, it becomes super obvious why these things are connected. And it just goes like this. You know, I, I think I mentioned earlier that my experience, and sometimes I like to I like to just simplify things, you know. So sometimes I say things that aren't one hundred percent true, they're just mostly true. But you know, for our purposes today, hopefully that that's what's important. And so what I want to say is that that most of business value comes from driving customer behavior. So if you look at if you look at what you're you're trying to achieve as a business, it's generally revenue, 
profit, share price. And by the way, share price is heavily driven by revenue and profit, right? So these things are all interconnected. So how do you accomplish revenue profit? It's, it's a lot about driving customer behavior. If you can get your customers to buy more, to be less price sensitive, in other words, to pay you more for the same thing, to buy your more expensive products, uh, to share stuff on social media, to tell their friends to lower your marketing costs. And while they're at it, to not call your call center for help and support because that costs you more to not do the things that cost you more money, right? So to get them to do what you want them to do and not do what you don't want them to do, then, you know, that's going to get you the revenue, profit, and share price. That's it, right? So then the question is, all right, well, that's sort of obvious. Okay, Howard, obviously, we want our customers to do those things. So then the question is, well, well, how do you get people to do what you want them to do? Because that's that's the name of the game in business, persuading people, influencing people to do what you want them to do, and especially customers, but again, also employees and others. And so the question then comes down to, well, why do? My wife, by the way, is a psychologist, so I, I, get, I get schooled in this at home. Mm-hmm. Why do people do anything? And the answer is thoughts and feelings. The thoughts and feelings that you have are what lead you to do things. And I go into this in more detail in the book, but if you just, hopefully that makes a kind of an intuitive sense uh, that people do what they want. They do things either because they're emotional, they have an emotional desire or a feeling or fear or what have you, and or thoughts that make them think it's, it's a good thing to do or concerns, et cetera. And so then the question is, well, where do thoughts and feelings come from? Because in theory, if we could engineer, if we could figure out, and this goes to what you said earlier, Douglas, about the importance of understanding your customer. If you could understand what are the thoughts and feelings that lead to the behaviors you want, which by the way, you can, and in the book we provide, we go on for at length, we provide a whole bunch of different exercises and strategies and research techniques to try to do that process of understanding the mindset and behavior of your customer and the connection between their thoughts and feelings and their behavior. So, but, but even still, even if you could know which thoughts and feelings will drive that behavior, the question is, okay, but how do I put thoughts and feelings into my customer? What causes thoughts and feelings? And the answer is that by and large, thoughts and feelings come from experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, when you're a baby, you know, you come out crying. So you've got some feelings, even though you haven't had many experiences, but all your nuanced thoughts and feelings are a result of everything that you've experienced in your life. And so, and so to me, a lot of business is about crafting experiences they could be experiences in marketing and sales. They could be experiences of a product. You know, Apple puts a lot of energy into the packaging, right? The experience of opening a new iPhone, the box, the case, and then obviously the software that runs on it. You're selling experience. I mean, yes, they're selling metal cases with chips and screens and all that, but really what they're selling is an experience. So if you can figure out what is the experience that will drive the thoughts and feelings that lead to the behaviors you want. Now you've kind of got that little, it's like one of those Newton ball things, you know, where you pull one ball back and then it hits the other balls and the other ball on the other side Mm. shoots off. If you figure, once you've got that figured out, which you can figure out through customer research, then it's just a question of figuring out, well, how do we, you know, we, we can then create the vision of what that experience needs to be to generate the thoughts and feelings to result in the behaviors that drive our revenue, profit, and share price. And then usually you discover, yeah, but that's not the experience we have today. Right. <laughs> and, and why not? Well, there may be many reasons, but very often it's because, because digital is such a powerhouse force in driving people's needs and expectations today, because we haven't 
we're not digitally mature enough. We need to be able to, and this, again, it's not the only aspect of customer experience. I, n- I never mean to suggest that it is, but it's just such a dominant one yes. that it, it, it becomes a lot of the topic of conversation. Well, and also there's an expectation. In other words, like the Amazon effect you hear about, where if they've mm-hmm. experienced yeah. something with one company, they expect it from yours. Yeah. I, I can't remember if I put this story in the book, but I was working once with a very, very large, one of the largest manufacturers of medical devices, especially large medical devices, things like MRI machines and PET scanning machines and stuff like that. And uh, so I remember doing customer research with the people who, like mostly at hospitals, who buy these things and they have to decide, are they going to go with company X or company Y? And I remember people, we heard this from multiple people, but I remember one guy in particular was saying, you know, I go on Amazon and I buy a book. And they tell me every step of the way, they've received the order, it's being packaged, it's being sent, it's almost there. They tell me every step of the way what's happening with that book that I just bought for $12.99. I bought a $1.2 million MRI machine from your company, and I can't get information on what the status is of this and when it's going to be delivered to my hospital so I can plan. (laughs) How is it that I can get it for a $12 book and not for a $1.2 million MRI machine? It's true. If we can put a man on the moon... Fill in the blank. Yes, it's yeah. it's uh it's that's so true, and, and you're right that people you you can't actually create the experiences for people. People create their own experiences, but we can create touch points, and we'll right. we'll touch onto that. But let's go on to uh, understanding your customer. Sometimes I I, I I'm explaining this to, to to groups or whatever, and I it just seems like it's such a blind spot. So again, I was so excited to see this is one of the five major things is how to understand your customer. And there's a lot of information in the book, but I want to quote from page 97, which again, just, ah, it it really resonated with me, right? I have spoken to executives who offer commonly repeated beliefs about what the customer thinks and cares about, many of which are eventually shown to be oversimplifications, out of date, or just flat out wrong. (laughs) by the subsequent direct customer research. In fact, a key benefit of doing comprehensive customer research is to help those executives and the wider team get regrounded in the reality of the customer's wants, needs, thoughts, and feelings. And then I couldn't resist. There was one other one so important from page 104. In my decades of what you call direct customer research, the most universal theme I've seen is that when the research is structured correctly, you will learn things that you never could have thought of. Even with years of conference room brainstorming, you will encounter people who have been, you will encounter people who have very different perspectives from yours and who see the world in a manner that is fundamentally distinct from the way you see it. You may realize that all the indirect data you have been analyzing up to that point has been interpreted through your own view of the world, your own knowledge, experiences, values, and beliefs. And uh, Howard, again, it, was, it, it just took me back to why it's so uh, difficult for people to understand their customers. Yeah. And, and you're not a big fan of the word empathy, and I could understand why, because it, it gets confused with like sympathy, compassion, pity, which it's not. Understanding your customers, I agree with you, it's a better way to say it. But at, at, I guess at a high level, uh, what are some of the most effective ways companies can start to better understand their customers? Sure. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, re- really understanding your customer is both is both hard and easy. And that might sound a little contradictory, but it is it is hard and I think it's important that that we all, all of us in business, take have a certain humility and recognize that really understanding 
some, and another individual, let alone a huge body of individuals, really understanding their mindset and thinking and motivation. That's a very tall order. You know, I sometimes joke, like how, how many of us have, how many, you know, Demi Douglas, have you ever gone out and, and bought something that was maybe even kind of expensive and you thought, oh, I'm going to use this all the time. I'm using this every day. You know, maybe it was an exercise bike or a hot tub or I don't know, some electronic gadget. And then you kind of like used it once and then never really used it anymore. Did that, did you ever do that? Oh, probably. Yeah. Is it didn't turn out to be like quite like I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I have. I'm sure. I have. Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned only because most people have that experience, you know, you bought the gym membership, you said I was going to go every day and then, you know, you almost never went or whatnot. And, um, I mean, the reality is we don't even know each know ourselves all that well, you know, mm-hmm. to really, really understand what we're to predict our own behavior, you know? So yeah, it's really hard to really truly thoroughly understand. But having said that, what's easy about it is this most organizations and many individuals who are making decisions about customer experience can have their understanding of the customer radically increased by spending a modest amount of time engaged in a couple of activities that I'll describe in a moment. So, you know, it's like, yes, it's hard to get to a hundred percent, but it's pretty easy to get to 50%. And a lot of people are walking around at 10%. Now, mm-hmm. you know, there's exceptions of course. And, and so one of the things that I think is the most valuable is to just observe customers, to observe them doing the behaviors or engaged in the decision-making processes that you hope to influence. So for example, if you're trying to get people to buy your product in the grocery store, see if you can't spend some time in grocery stores observing people standing there in the aisle debating whether to buy you know, whatever it is, this type of pasta or that type of pasta. And as you observe their decision process, observe what are they doing to try to make a decision? For example, are they reading the nutritional information? Are they looking at the box? Are they looking up reviews on their phone? Are they calling a friend? You know, um, like we've done a lot of work in the car rental industry, for example. So uh, we would sit people down and we'd say, do you have a trip coming up and uh, that you haven't booked a rental car for? And hopefully they'd say yes. And we'd say, okay, great. Let's do it now. Here's a computer or you can use your phone. I want to see what you do. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. Let's just see what happens. And what you discover is, well, people take different strategies. Some people go, oh, well, I always go to Hertz and go to their website and blah, blah, blah. And so some people say, I trick multiple websites. They go to Hertz and then Avis and Enterprise. Some people say, oh, I go to Costco because I have a membership there. Some people go to Orbitz or Expedia. Some people go to Google and type Car Rental Atlanta or wherever they're going. So we're seeing like what strategies people are using to try to try to start the process of gathering information and then observing what do they do next? And when they go to a website and what are they looking for? And what is it that prompts them to just say, yeah, I'm going to commit to this or makes them say, yeah, okay, this is a good price. I'm going to write it down on a little post-it note. And then I'm going to go to another website, you know, just really understanding what is their process. And it's that detailed level. It's the customer journey that they're going on, not just with one brand, but to solve the overall goal. You know, if someone's trying to buy a gift for a nine, their nine-year-old niece, what steps do they go through? Do they talk to the parent? Do they Google good gifts for nine-year-olds? You know, do they go to one? Do they go to one website and click on the age category? So it's that level of granular detail to understand how people go through that process. And it's not just a sales. I'm, my examples here are mostly about sales and trying to get someone to buy. But it's equally true. You know, if you're trying to improve someone's experience in using your product, 
What happens when they receive your product? How do they unpackage it? What do they do first? You know, if your product has to be assembled, are they, what happens? Literally watch them do it. And, you know, nothing could be more valuable than this. And in rental car, for example, just as much. Here's what I found on the web. Sorry. Good Lord. Is that mine? Is that you or me? It's you. What on earth? Hang on one second. Is it a. Hang on a second. Something that I said must have triggered. All right, hang on. I'm sorry. That was really weird. These are. This is the problem with all of our smart devices today. My um, <laughs> my Samsung tablet with Bixby or whatnot must have decided that I just asked it to do something for me. Oh <laughs> wow! What it interpreted. So, interesting. Interesting. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned earlier in the book that uh, digital leaders obsess over removing every little bit of unnecessary effort that they possibly can, and that com- the companies that are resonating with today's customers are taking the effort out of the interaction at every point uh, possible. But there was one quote from um, – you mentioned Henry Ford here, and it's so important – And I say this because, believe it or not, I once sat in a focus group room in New Jersey, uh, and it was some focus group moderator the client had hired, not not us, but we came along. And they were inexperienced, and I remember them saying, well, tell me what I should do, saying this to consumers, what I should do. I need to go back to this client and tell them what they should do. (laughs) I just, I was floored, and it always stuck in my head. I hope she's... um, no longer a focus group moderator, uh, because that's counter to what I'm about to read. You write, when you're studying your customers, try to see past the surface of what they're telling you they need. Henry Ford once said, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said, faster horses. The moral of that story is not to avoid speaking to customers, but rather that your customer may not be able to envision the kind of solutions your product team can conceive. So listen past their stated request to fully understand their underlying concerns and needs. Your customers want to go faster, and it is your job to come up with a solution far more practical than breeding faster horses. So important. Um, the Steve Jobs example of the iPod, that people didn't ask for that, but he understood what their problem was and how the iPod could help them bring a lot of music along with them. So let's move on to mapping the customer journey, which is uh, step two. And that's about getting clear on all the experiences, which includes the awesome ones that wow your customers, the middle of the road ones, and the bad ones. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with all the rewards, glitches, and and point of frustration. And I found it interesting that, I mean, you, you pose the question. It seems like a you know the guy with his arms crossed would say, but if we're going to completely redo the customer experience anyway, why is it so important to document and analyze it? Why don't we just get going on the future? Explain why the, the value of setting that benchmark, even though it's probably going to identify some some mistakes and problems and holes. Yeah. Well, you know, at the simplest level, it's like, Let's say you're trying to figure out how to get somewhere. You need to know not just where you want to go, but you better know where you are now. (laughs) You know, if you don't know that, then you really can't plot your route, even if you know exactly where the place you're trying to go is. Now, you know, obviously that's just a metaphor, but I think um, that, first of all, a lot of companies are doing things that are right. And the last thing you want to do is throw those things away. And secondly, when you're trying to figure out 
what to do. The most successful product innovations, for example, or process innovations around sales or whatnot, usually are about solving pain. Yes. They're about figuring out where's the friction, where's the inconvenience, where's the, where is the person, where's the customer suffering in some ways, large or small, and figuring out what you can do to make a change to, to remove that pain. And so um, where can you understand that better than by looking at what's happening today? And, you know, you may discover that, that you don't need to re-engineer everything. You just need to, to, to tweak a few things. Uh, you know, I mean, I think one of the reasons that Uber was so successful is that they solved really just a couple of pain points of the classic kind of taxi car service experience. One of which being you have to stand outside looking for a cab, at least in New York City, you know, uh, and put your arm out and sometimes in the rain, you know, versus having to just, you know, push a button and, and know when that car was coming to you. But, you know, also at a much smaller level, one thing I love about taking Uber or Lyft or any of these others is that the car pulls up wherever I'm going and I can just get out. I don't have to spend the 20 seconds it used to take me to pay the taxi driver. And even though this is not going to change my productivity for the day by a large measure by saving me that 20 seconds, you know, I feel... I feel it. And on occasion when I now have had to take a New York City taxi driver, taxi cab for one reason or another, and I get there, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, geez, I got to pay this guy. It's not going to automatically pay him. It's not a matter of the money. It's a matter of the effort. So it's it's that kind of obsession around removing effort. So if, you're, if your goal is to remove effort, start with what you've got today. It's like what you were saying earlier about, you know, uh, the obsession about taking effort out. You know, Netflix figured out that it was kind of a hassle when you finished your third episode of Stranger Things and wanted to move on to the fourth episode of Stranger Things that you had to find the remote, which was probably as many as three or four feet away from you, and then actually lift it and find the little like next button and press it. I mean, who's got time to live like with that kind of effort, you know? These are barbaric times we're in, Howard. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, Um, I mean, I mean, P.T. Barnum once said, you know, um, uh, something like, uh, you know, Nobody ever lost money underestimating the stupidity of the American public or something like that. But today, I think it's more about underestimating the laziness of the American yes, public. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That's great. And yeah, you, you write, look at any successful company today, and you'll see that they are in the pain-solving business. And if you can find the pain in your customer's current experience, you have identified a potential opportunity that, if you can solve it, might be a gold mine. So a couple things about this pain. So, so we've gone from love to money to pain. This is turning into a rather torrid interview. But you talk about when you relieve blame pain, you avoid negative emotions. When you relieve accepted pain, you create positive emotions. Can you explain what uh, blame pain and accepted pain are? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, because we spent so much time studying pain, you know, it's kind of like, if you don't know much about ants, they all look the same to you. But if you're a person who studies ants, you start to notice all the differences between the different types of ants. So we've spent so much time studying pain, we've noticed that there's some different types of pain. There's actually different ways we, we analyze the differences between different types of pain. But one of them is this idea that there's accepted pain and blame pain. So what does that mean? Well, blame pain is what you might normally think of, where the customer is annoyed 
because you're doing something that is not meeting their expectations. And the classic example that I like to use is I go to the grocery store to check out and there's nine people in line ahead of me and I have to wait 25 minutes to finally get out of the store. And I, I'm, I'm annoyed and I'm thinking I'm mad or I'm feeling some kind of negative emotion anyway. I'm frustrated, I'm mad. And it may be that I'm mad at the store, like why the heck don't they have more cashiers? Or I could be mad at the people in front of me. Why do they put so much stuff in their cart? Or I'm mad at myself. Why did I wait and come during the busy time? But in any case, I'm experiencing a negative emotion. And whether I'm directing that negative emotion at the brand or myself or my fellow shoppers, it almost doesn't matter because what's happening is I'm having a negative emotion while I'm on the journey of that brand. And so I am, I am reinforcing to that, for that customer is reinforcing for themselves, brand pain, brand pain. And that is not what you want, right? You do not want, the mind is kind of an association machine and you want them to associate positive, wonderful things that are going to make them want to come back, not painful emotions with the experience of your brand. So of course, being able to find where you have that kind of blame pain in your existing customer experience and alleviate it should be a, a major priority. And, you know, very often, as we've been talking about, very often, you know, companies are aware of some of the areas that they're causing pain for their customers. They hear it from the customers. But many companies don't have the best listening posts to get all that data back from the people who are sort of on the ground with customers every day. And by not doing the right kind of research, very often they also don't really realize all the different types of pain or they're not able to really prioritize them and understand which are the most significant points of pain, which affect the most people. So some of the spreadsheets and the other tools that you mentioned earlier that are on the website that come in the book really provide you tools to help you go through and categorize and inventory all that pain so that you can figure out which are the most impact, the ones that are impacting your business the most. So that's blame pain. But you asked about blame pain versus accepted pain. So yeah. accepted pain is something we realized, and it kind of goes to what I said about Uber earlier. Accepted pain is the things we do that inconvenience us that we've just come to accept. Just like how I used to accept that when I take a taxi cab and I get to the location, I can't just jump out of the car right away. I have to stop and pay the driver. That's my <laughs> obligation. And it never struck me as like, why do I have to do this? You know, Because it just seemed like that's how it goes. It's kind of like when you go to check out at the grocery store, if instead of nine people in front of you, there's just one person ahead of you and you have to wait five minutes. You know, generally speaking, most people aren't going to get mad about that. They're not going to be like happy about it. They're just going to, you know, whatever. It's This is how it is at the grocery store. But then all of a sudden, Amazon creates a store, Amazon Go, where you just walk in, grab whatever you want, and just walk out. There is no checkout whatsoever. And now you're delighting people because now what you've done, because see- when you remove blame pain, you simply neutralize a negative emotion. You don't necessarily create a positive one. You just neutralize a negative one. But still, that's important to do. Yeah. But when you eliminate accepted pain, you create delight. The person says, what? I don't even have to stand in line at all, or I don't have to stop and pay the driver, that sort of thing. And it's especially powerful if you can do both, if you can eliminate the negative feelings. And then we talked earlier about delighting the customer, right? give the customer extra delight by taking away pain that they didn't even blame you for, that's when you're really starting to generate more and more going moving up that scale towards customer love. Yes. And I've, I've experienced the accepted pains. And sometimes I'll think to myself, wait a minute, what's the catch? <laughs> this is, this is almost too easy or it's too good. And it's a, it's a great feeling. Yeah. I'd never seen it. Um, 
explained that way. One other thing I wanted to ask about was when you urge readers to focus on understanding the customer's emotional landscape, um, in other words, the, the emotional journey that a customer is on. I don't know that it's the first thing that companies think of when they're trying to market or sell to somebody, but can you explain what, the, what you mean by a customer's emotional landscape? Yeah. Well, first of all, people are happiest when they're on an emotional journey. You know, I mean, when you think about sitting around at home bored, because you're not, you're not feeling anything. You're not feeling any excitement. There's no suspense. There's no, you know, intensity. Then, then, then discovery of something and then amazement or excitement. You know, when you, when you have this kind of, if you're, if you're having sort of the same emotion all the time, you get bored, but what we enjoy, and this is what a great movie does, right? A great movie doesn't just, it's not exciting. In fact, sometimes I go to a movie like a mission impossible movie or something. And it's just like chase scenes for like 25 minutes in a row. I don't know about you, but I get bored, right? I'm like, okay, enough already with the chase scenes. And, <laughs> Versus a movie that, you know, starts out, everything's nice, and then there's a challenge, and then, and even some negative emotions can be um, enjoyable when they're followed by positive emotions. You know, it's like, oh no, there's a problem, and oh, there's a solution, and yeah, creating oh, no, tension. complication. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. That's what keeps us engaged. You know, as humans, we're, we're wired to look for that kind of stuff. And so, uh, thinking about, this is what a lot of gamification is about. You know, this is a big term right now. You know, how do you... How do you create some excitement? This is one of the things that eBay has been so successful at. You know, if you think about, I mean, one of the things that I think that eBay has done that's genius is somehow, instead of saying that you bought something, they tell you you've won something. Ah, uh, yes. And then you give them your credit card to pay for it. And it's like, huh, what a genius idea. Because, you know, the, the I mean, you might be excited about buying something. I mean, I guess it depends what you buy. Some people buy something and they're thrilled. Uh, my wife might buy a new pair of shoes and she's elated, but there's something special about winning something. And so just thinking about how do you, and by the way, one of the things eBay has also is that time when you're bidding, right? So you see this thing that you want, but you don't know if you're going to get it right. And now you got to try and put your bid in, but you're not sure it's the right amount. So there's even some uncertainty, right? Maybe some concern mm -hmm. and the sense of suspense, right? This is an emotional journey. And, and this is something that's very powerful. So I think that um, when we plot out a, current state journey map, which very often has points of negative emotion, uh, we like to demonstrate that and say, you know, your customer's coming to you and this is where they're confused and this is where they're frustrated and this is where they're worried. Worried, is your product even going to arrive or whatever else? And by and large, we want to try to minimize those negative feelings. So that's helpful to understand is what is that current emotional journey? But we also want to think about, well, what is the emotional journey that we want? Because it's not neutral the whole time either. So mm -hmm. I feel like part of the art of designing customer journeys is thinking about how do we want our customers to feel each step of the way? Yes, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead uh, just to the, um, the next step, the future. And you're right that the great customer journeys are not just bad customer journeys with a bunch of things patched up. <laughs> what, right. what is a future state journey map? It's a kind of an infographic, a very often large um, journey maps that we create, what they really try to do is they depict the, the linear sequence that a customer goes through over a period of time. And you could do them at different time scales, meaning I've done journey maps that just show like what someone's experience as they go into a retail store and shop and then purchase something and then exit through security and hopefully 
don't discover that you've left a security tag on their shirt and to trigger security and everyone points and finger at them and thinks they're a thief, right? Yeah. Which is obviously a example of a point of pain, but a, not an uncommon point of pain in some people's shopping journeys. But so, you know, you can have a journey map that covers that. It might be an experience of 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. You can even have micro journeys that are just for very short, like what happens when you create your, do your password reset, you know, which might just be a journey of, of a few, a minute or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can also do long, like almost lifelong customer journeys. Like for example, we worked with American Girl looking at the journey of raising a child and the relationship and the interactions between a company like American Girl when the child is three and when the child is six and when the child is nine, because they have different products, different types of doll products for different ages and different stories and different things that engage with the family as you move through that journey of a, of a child, a girl in this case, growing up. So, but in any case, whether, whatever your time scale is, it's something that allows someone to kind of visualize in a pictographic way, what are the steps along the road? What are the touch points? What are the kinds of interactions? What happens? And it can show other things as well. It can show the emotions. It can show the technologies that are used and other things. And, and it's a helpful way of making it digestible so that everyone can understand either this is our current, you can have a current state journey map or a future state, but let's take in the case of a future state, this is our North Star. This is the experience we want the customer to have. This is how we want, to move, we want them to move through their interaction with our brand. And very often you create many journey maps because there are different types of journeys, right? For example, I work with the Avis Budget Group. So the journey of renting a truck to to move your apartment is not the same as the journey of renting a car convertible for your you know vacation in Miami, right? I mean, it has some similar components, but it has some things that are quite different, some different considerations. So you wind up creating different journey maps for different types of customer interactions or different types of customers. Right. And, and I'm, so the listener understands, I'm asking Howard questions that span maybe a hundred pages on some of these things. And it's, uh, we're just cut touching on a few of the, the key points that I think uh, are, are so important. But one thing that you mentioned as it related to the effective future state is that being clear on where the customer is feeling the most pain is a powerful starting point for crafting an effective future state. So uh, Howard Tiersky, this is all good. Okay. But I need results right now. What are some of the ways to get? Uh, this you is the sound like part. some of my clients. Yes, yeah, I figured. Uh, you know, that's that's great. You know, Mister Design Thinking, whatever. Uh, but I need quick results. And and so, what are some of the things to help get some quick results within your current reality? No matter how far along you are in this overall transformation, which doesn't happen quickly. Right. Well, it's true that complete transformation of customer journeys can take years. And, uh, and should never end, really. Well, you're right. It really should never end because, you know, as I said earlier, digital transformation is a lot about keeping up with change and the change isn't stopping. So you really can't afford to stop either. It's like a race with no finish line. At least it feels <laughs> that way. Of course, you should celebrate milestones. I think that's very important. You never want, you never have good morale if people feel like this is your, you're pushing the rock endlessly up the hill. So I think it's important to celebrate milestones, but absolutely true that that, that transformation never ends. And in order for in order to sustain, uh, you know, the support that you need within an organization, you generally have to show quick wins. You generally have to show progress. You can't say to everyone, you know, don't worry, just keep funding us $10 million a year for three or four years. And eventually there's <laughs> going to be some results. I mean, yeah. that's probably not going to happen. They, they want to um, see some points on the board. Yeah, absolutely. And your customers want that too, right? If you're, if you're not satisfying your customers, 
you can't really tell them, well, we've just begun a digital transformation that we finished in two years. Please keep patronizing us and stay in pain for two years, but don't worry, great things on the other end of it. I mean, that is not a message that's going to work. So you want to do both. You want to make sure you're thinking about the long-term bigger transformations. You don't want to limit your thinking to just stuff that you can fix quickly, but you also don't want to only think about big long-term transformation. And so What's cool is when you start to do customer research to understand where points of pain are, very often you discover a variety of things, some of which can only be fixed through major transformation and others of which may be fixable in a very quick, short-term way. And there are also some research techniques that we use, and I'll mention one or two quickly, which, and, but there are many in the book, which are designed to specifically seek out the kinds of problems that can be addressed quickly or can often be addressed quickly. So let me give you one example that we talk about in the book, which is error logs. This is going to sound mm. very, very mundane, <laughs> but it's the kind of, there's like gold in them, our hills. And I'm amazed at how many companies are not paying attention to them. So, you know, briefly, I mean, generally speaking, if you have apps or websites, which I'm sure everyone listening does, somewhere in the bowels of the administrative interfaces of these tools is there some kind of log of every time a customer tries to do something and they get an error or something that says that is not a valid email address or you know that your transaction could not be processed or your credit card was declined etc and you know i always like to think of especially if you're talking about like a sales experience as being in two components there's the persuasion component and then there's the transaction component. First, you have to get them to want to say yes, to in- create an intent. And then you've got to not screw it up between that point and the point that you have their money, right? And there's lots of opportunities to screw it up because how often do people, how often have you put something in your shopping cart kind of or whatever, kind of started the process of buying something or, or registering for something or signing up for something. And then somewhere along the way, something happened and you never completed the process. So how many times have you completed a, uh, a, you know, not completed a process because something was in your way. Well, very often, not always, but there, there, there may have been some sort of error along the way. One thing we know from our research is that if a customer receives an error, any error, the likelihood of their completing that transaction drops significantly. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some of these errors might be, you know, bugs, right? So it seems like a very obvious thing to say, well, you know, if your, tra- if your checkout process is broken and not working, you should fix it. And that goes without saying. But there is another maybe more subtle angle to this, which is very often there are a lot of errors that we would say are the user's fault, right? Well, they entered the date wrong. They entered the credit card number wrong. Their email address wasn't valid. So, I mean, what can we do about it? It wasn't our software that didn't work. It was the customer's mistake. Well, the truth of the matter is it's our job designing great customer experiences to make it extremely unlikely that the customer will make a mistake. Now, it's never going to be perfect. But we like to comb through error logs and see, well, what kind of errors occur with a more frequent than normal frequency? Because if a lot of people's emails are getting rejected more than normal, then we go, well, you know, what are we doing there to validate email addresses? And just as a point of one example there, and I'll move on because there's so many examples of this and I don't want to fill up your whole podcast with this, but my particular email address ends in my company's name is called from digital and my email address ends in at from dot digital. And you wouldn't believe how many websites I go on when I type in my email address at from dot digital, it says that's not a valid email address. Right, right. It is a valid email address. I use it every day. I swear it is. But something in their code thinks if your email address doesn't end in dot net dot com or dot edu or dot gov, 
is not valid. It's just, it's just wrong. Now that may seem like a small thing, but when a user can't get their email address to work, that creates a, a point of pain, a bump. And many email users will get past it, right? They'll just say, oh, well, I have another email address. I'll give you a different email address. But first of all, you've created friction. You've created some little amount of pain. And secondly, some percentage of customers will fail at that point and not complete the transaction. And the analogy I always like to use for this, and a lot of these little optimization activities is what I call my duct, duct tape analogy. And it goes like this. Let's say it's the holidays and you want to put a Christmas tree in the lobby of your office. And so you run an extension cord across the hallway because the electrical outlet's on the other side of the hallway. But you don't want anyone to trip, so you duct tape this electrical cord to the floor. And so people start walking by, and the first person, you know, they, it's fine. They don't trip. The second person, the 10th person, the 20th person, everybody's fine. Nobody's tripping on this duct-taped extension cord. And then all of a sudden, the 100th person trips on this duct-taped extension cord. And you laugh and at then, them. Well, yeah, well yeah, hopefully not. No, I'm kidding. That really, was Douglas, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was in the book. That was really, Yes. No, it's very, very important, though. And actually, that's against code, I learned. But um, Well, indeed. Indeed. Right. And but, why? But it wasn't good for that person. Well, exactly. And the point is, if only one out of every hundred people trips on a glitch or an issue or a problem on your website, you could ask, well, is that a problem? Well, I work on many websites that do more than a billion dollars a year in revenue. So if one, well, what is 1% of a billion dollar <laughs> revenue website? It's $10 well, we're million. We're talking real money here. Yeah. So, and you know, and if you can fix it for $10,000, I mean, does that make business sense? Is that good ROI? Um, and I don't know how much it will cost to fix. It depends what the problem is. But so a lot of it is this kind of stuff. It's stuff that you would probably know about it if it was like stopping half the people from, from using your website, but it's the stuff that's just bothering a few people or, or costing you a few dollars here and there. And when you look at a whole portfolio of these and you find 10 things like that, each of which is losing you a half a point of conversion here, a quarter point of conversion there, one point of conversion there. We've worked with many companies where after six months or eight months or whatever of fixing a lot of things that seem really little, they're like, wow, you know, the, it's millions of dollars more revenue. So that's the kind of little stuff that we talk about in the book around optimization that can really help keep people believing while you're working on fixing the bigger stuff. Yes. And in the book, you talk about how doing some of these things can actually yield some of the biggest dramatic value just by going in there. And just to wrap up this part, there was a uh, talk about understanding, if you can just understand your customer's confusion, their frustration, and their fear, you will go a long way towards getting some of these quick wins, low-hanging fruit optimization things. And I just, that really resonated with me because, you know, in the marketing business, if you are able to say, this is what's confusing our customers, whether it's about your company or not, or what is frustrating them about your whole industry, and what are their fears they have about doing business with you? Uh, solid gold. Just two other things I wanted to ask you about from the book. You're right. It's too late for Blockbuster, which is the video chain in the United States. Uh, they may have been overseas as well. This is about overcoming enterprise resistance to change. It's too late for Blockbuster. Along with brands like Kodak and Western Union, Blockbuster symbolizes the ultimate corporate failure, a company that owned an entire industry and then threw it away because it couldn't or wouldn't change with the times. But there's a big difference between Blockbuster and those other companies, at least to me. 
because I was there at Blockbuster headquarters. I was there before it was too late. I was there as a high-priced consultant with a prestigious firm hired to help Blockbuster develop its future digital vision, the one to compete with Netflix, the one to save the company. It was an awesome assignment, but I blew it. I think you were beating yourself up a bit too much, but now no one's going to buy the book. This guy's <laughs> nope, a failure. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Well, I don't really think it was about you, Howard. <laughs> you didn't go on to explain. You think that's a little hubris to think that I'm personally responsible? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, but it was fascinating. So I've read in other books about the problems that Kodak had, and those were real mm-hmm. problems. They were. I just don't know that they could have made the transformation anyway, and this gave me a much better understanding of why Blockbuster wasn't changed, but it was emblematic of so many things that are typical for resistance to change. What did Blockbuster's failure have to do with candy? Well, you know, in a way a lot, in a way only a little. But I think the, the story, so the story goes, uh, you know, we were pitching uh, visions of a future for Blockbuster that involved streaming to the home. At the time, you know, Blockbuster's key strategy was they had a store on every corner, practically. They were like what Starbucks is today, practically. I mean, they had thousands and thousands. They were in the real estate business, so to speak. Well, in many ways, yes. And that's right. And uh, so they had so many stores and they considered it to be their key asset. And so here we are saying the future of home entertainment, filmed home entertainment, you know, is streaming to the home. And we, we had people say to us, that we don't understand their business to suggest that suggests we don't understand their business. And we're like, okay, what do you mean? They say, we have to understand that, that the, the DVDs that we rent, uh, we don't make a lot of money on those because of the studios. They've negotiated such a large percentage of the rental for themselves to get all these blockbuster titles. Uh, so where we're really making our money is on candy. And well, they used to make it on late fees, right? But then they had to get rid of that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's right. And this is and this point that I was there was after they had already made that decision to eliminate a key point of pain for customers. Yeah, and I'll never forget. I was living in New York City. This was before I worked with Blockbuster, and there was I forget which year it was. Maybe like uh, something late nineties. It was a giant snowstorm, a crazy snowstorm, and I was living on the Upper East Side, and I had to try to get my I had my Blockbuster videos that had to be returned, and the Blockbuster was only about I don't know maybe three four blocks from my house. So, but I'm like, I don't want to pay those late fees, you know? So even though like everything was closed, I'm like, I'm going to Blockbuster. So I I take my Blockbuster, my little, you know, those little plastic cases and I bundle up and I go down the elevator and I go out and I get out and literally I'm like still like, maybe like I'm like a half a block away from my building and it's crazy windy out and it's like a blizzarding and a burst of wind literally blows me over and I'm lying in a snowbank, right? In which is dirty too, right? You know, yeah. And the New buses weren't even uh, running at right, that point. Right. Yeah. I remember and, that snowstorm. And, and I'm thinking like, all right, screw it. You know, Blockbuster's probably not even open. I'm not going to make it to Blockbuster. Forget it. And I turn around and I go back up the elevator. And so it was like two days later, the snowstorm's over and I go back to Blockbuster and I say, hey, listen guys, I don't even know if you're open. I tried to, I tried to return these. Um, but anyway, you know, I hope you're not going to charge me. It was a crazy snowstorm. And they're like, Oh, oh, oh no, we, we have to charge you. You're two days late. <laughs> oh. like, Gee, th- thanks for the empathy. You know? So, I mean, it wasn't a lot of money, but you know, it was probably 10 bucks, but man, I remember it 20 years later. Right. So yeah. they, they made, I think a, a good choice because it's always dicey to be in the breakage business. You know, it's like, you know, 
fitness clubs as well, where, you know, they're just really counting on you buying a two-year membership and then never coming, you know, Mm -hmm. I really, I think that's always a dangerous uh, position to be in because it puts yourself, puts you sort of as an, a foe of your customer in a way, but you know, Blockbuster basically, um, as you say, this was, you know, after the late fee situation. So that was all the more reason why they weren't making as much money off the videos. And so where the real profit was coming from was candy. And what I heard from them, you know, repeatedly different executives was you can't stream candy. Yes. <laughs> which remains true to this day. I yes. cannot dispute that point, even though they do do it in the Willy Wonka movies. But nevertheless, I don't think that's a real thing. <laughs> that's not what they so, wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, so, but the point is that the real story wasn't really about candy, but the real story is that it was a company run by retail store people, people right. from JC Penney and from other giant, great retailers. They saw themselves as store people. That was their identity. And to suggest that the future of the company was not in stores was to unintentionally suggest that they would not be needed or important because you're moving away from the thing that they love, the thing that they're expert in. And so you can't, it's difficult to expect people to sign on to a transformation, which feels like it goes against their own interest and against their own, the thing that they believe in and are passionate about. And so the candy thing is the bottom line is people will come up with excuses. I mean, after all, look at Netflix. I mean, they're still not making any money from candy and I think they're doing okay. (laughs) So clearly this was not an insurmountable obstacle, but it wasn't a BS. It was true. And very often though, this is what happens with digital transformation. You know, Jeff, um, uh, uh, Jeff Zucker years ago at NBC bemoaned the idea that as he was streaming his content, he was trading digital uh, analog dollars for digital pennies. Yes. And, so this is a challenge, right? Sometimes the business model needs to change and you need to figure out what that new business model is. But if you're too married to who you already are, then you just can't see it. And you say, well, that doesn't work. We're a stores company, you know, and if we do that, we won't be able to sell candy. So forget it. But if your, your answer is, we'll just keep the world the way it is now. And that will better align with our business goals. And you know, you're living in a fantasy world. You're, you're just not going to be standing in the way of progress is, is really a successful strategy. Mm, yes. And in the book also, we haven't had time to talk about it and we won't, but it's about how to lead this types of digital transformation. But it's also, it was uh, like you talked about the qualities of a, a digital transformation leader. And almost every one of those were the qualities of a successful marketer now. Uh, you know, this sort of leadership that they have to have. And the last part, you, you talked about like nine reasons people resist change, and we can't go into all of them, but I've seen every single one of these. And it was so um, interesting. I could imagine a salesperson has bumped into these. I certainly have selling agency services. And I want to talk about just one though, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But you, the, I'll list them. The evolutionary psychology, personal benefit, so people don't want to change because of a it affects them. An industrialization mindset, the hypnosis of past success, the forces that create silos, addiction to a legacy business model, like we were just talking about with Blockbuster, lack mm-hmm. of legal flexibility. Let's let's blame the lawyers. Investor expectations and lack of execution alignment. I had to laugh here, like on page three fifty, you write perhaps. 10 to 15% of people in the world naturally seek out and enjoy change, excited by the constant new challenges it brings. Because you are reading this book and have even made it to the last section of the book, it's quite possible that you are one of those people. Me too. 
But for the majority, change equals pain. In fact, scientists tell us that most people are actually wired in their DNA to resist change. That's so important. What, what is it about our prehistoric brain that is keeping people from want, wanting to change? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm no expert at this, but I think it's, you know, back then, if you if you figured out how to survive, if you figured out a way to survive, you know, you found a cave that would protect you from, I don't know, the saber-toothed tigers or whatever. I'm I'm picturing the Flintstones, so I'm not sure if I'm yeah, or a wild boar, yeah, whatever, right? Or I know woolly mammoths were on on the planet while humans were as well. In fact, I think they were in New York State. So, um, in any case, um, you know, if you found some way to survive, uh, you didn't want to mess with it. You know, you were lucky to be surviving. And I think there was an element of, hey, this works. And someone's like, you know, there might be a better cave if we go over there. It's like, no, we're not leaving this cave. We're alive. <laughs> Nothing's killing us right now. We are not moving. And so there must have been a time when that was that that sort of psychology was an evolutionary benefit. And yet somehow our species also has these wildcard people who are people who love change. So, you know, it may be that the best um, recipe back then for the survival of the species was 80 to 90% of the people are given this mindset that says, when you find a cave, you stick with it. And then yeah. 10% are like, nope, I'm going to go find new caves. And those are the people that drove, you know, humanity forward. And, and it's, so I think it's, so it continues to this day, the people who really want to find something new are a minority and the people who just want to leverage what they've already got are the majority. So when you're selling something, you're selling change in almost every every instance, whatever it is, whether it's a product or a service, or you're selling your your uh, company's things, and just understanding that people are wired to resist change is enormously helpful. And it was a great reminder uh, for me. And for those listeners that want to understand how to overcome all the organizational resistance that I I mentioned recently, you need to read the book. Because we're running out of time, and uh, Howard has in there very specific ways that you can uh, navigate uh, the people that are uh, naturally wired to resist change. So, Howard, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, I would hope that it would be that there is a formula for success. I think the biggest danger that we face is despair. <laughs> And what I mean is, and you mentioned how you've seen in your work all of these points of resistance to change, this is a big challenge. And I think there are plenty of companies where people get in the middle of one of these types of opportunities. They see the need. They see where their company needs to go. They might even step up and say, hey, guys, you know, we need to be moving in this direction. This is what we need to do. But then when they realize the magnitude of the resistance and the challenges, they think, man, you know, no one's career is long enough to actually like get this company to where it needs to be. I think I'm just going to go, you know, take a job with Amazon or something. And, but the reality is it absolutely can be done. And the right blueprint, the right steps and process is key because it's like any other task. You know, if you try to figure it out on your own, you might be successful, but how long will it take you? And what is your likelihood of success? And what I've really tried to do with this book is consolidate 25 years of experience of succeeding and failing into I would never suggest that this is the only way to be successful. I would never say that. But this is a way to be successful in a, in a, in a, in a, at a task, which without a guide is very hard to be successful. And so what I would have them take away is say, uh, this is, this, you know, I, I always say it takes two things to be successful at digital transformation. It takes the right strategy and a hell of a lot of determination. So <laughs> what I can give you 
is the strategy. I can give you the approach. You have to supply the determination. But if you've got that, then this is a book and that, that can give you the steps to really be successful. And, and I, I believe that you will be, and I hope you get a chance to pick up the book. And um, I'd love to hear about your successes or even your challenges. And perhaps I can help with those as well. Yes. Great line from page 386. I spent two uh, ink pens marking this, this book up, just so you know. Wow. Consultants and agencies cannot do it for you, unfortunately but they can do it with you in a way that reduces the risk and increases the pace. You know, it's not something that you can just leave at the loading dock for a client. So what is just one thing a listener could do today when they get to work to put in action one of the many ideas from your book or perhaps one we've talked about? Well, if you're going to start somewhere, and there are many ways you could start, but if you you ask me, understanding your customer. Ask, what, what do we really know and understand about why our customer does and doesn't do business with us? What's the behavior that we really want them to engage in? How much are they doing it? And how much do we really understand about it? And, and if you were going to sort of start one project, if you will, it would be, I think, and, you know, maybe the answer is we have tons of information. That, you know, if your company is one where you have all this and reads of information is really well understand, then fantastic. You're in like the 0.1% minority and God bless you. But if you're like most, you have not really enough insight into the customer to really maximize your effectiveness. And so I would say the first thing to do is figure out, okay, how do we get more insight? And whether that's going out and hiring a market research company, and that's part of, certainly part of what my company does, or buying a book like mine and, and, and having your own teams engage in going out and conducting research and these types of uh, activities to gather information or, or something else that will help you data analysis. You know, we, in the book, we talk about indirect research, just looking at the data and what insights can you glean from that. But really trying to figure out what's really going on with our customers. Because the truth is, once you really understand what's going on with your customers, what their problems and challenges are, the solutions start to seem, in some cases, kind of obvious. When you don't understand, you're just coming up with ideas that are floating out in space. The likelihood of those being successful is fairly low. Right. Like the quote I had earlier about you know, just endless brainstorming in the conference room. It's so true. You know, Companies know so much less about their customers than they want to or than they think they know. And having been in the agency business, it's funny to me how whenever we had gone off and done some fairly, what I thought was rudimentary customer research and presented it back to the client, they were always, it was always the quietest quietest the clients ever were. (laughs) I was always so surprised that they weren't aware of these things. So, Anyway, that's that was just my uh, my my experience. What books, looking back, have have most inspired your work and career, Howard? Oh gosh, so many. Well, first of all, I was very excited when you mentioned earlier that there's a new version of the Experience Economy. I did not know that, and that is a book I found very inspiring when I read it. Gosh, it's, has it been like twenty years? Since yes, that book I think came they out? came out in '97, I believe. And then the the one I interviewed uh, Jim Gilmore about was written in 2018. All new, you know, all updated. Yeah, I, I did not know that, and, and I made myself a note as soon as you said that. Um, that's very exciting. And, um, you know, I, I, another book that I love that came out recently, um, which is by Tom Goodwin, is the book um, Digital Darwinism, that I think uh, does a great job of talking about, you know, the process of change and, and, and companies changing and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, so many other books, though. I mean, you know, the, the book Persuasion by Robert Caldini is just an amazing source of understanding of kind of the way people think and the way we engage with people from a sort of a marketing and customer experience perspective. Uh, all, all of Shep Hyken's books and, you know, um, 
the, what he talks about, about engaging with customers. So I, yeah. mean, I could go on and on, but those are some that I certainly would say I would recommend to anybody. He's coming back on the uh, podcast. He's got a, a, a new book coming out in September Absolutely. called I'll, I'll, I'll Be, be back. back. Yes, exactly. <laughs> He's doing a good job of making sure people know about it. So yeah. that's off to him. Yes, actually. Absolutely. In, in uh, your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, I'm going to include a link to the interview I did with uh, Jim Gilmore. And I'll also include uh, Shep Hyken's book trailer. It's the best book trailer yes, I've ever seen. It is. I know. Seen. I've seen it and I, I agree. It's fantastic. Yeah. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, you know the books you've mentioned, your, your sites, you've got a personal site, agency site, your LinkedIn profile. And now... A word to your dear listener, please do me one big favor. Please reach out to Howard and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. He spent a lot of time with us. He suffered through my stupid questions and jokes, and <clears throat> he's been working on this book probably for 25 years, and it really makes the author's day when they hear from people that listen to the podcast. I, I've just heard again from another author t- this week who said that they, they just love hearing from the Marketing Group podcast listeners. It really does make their day. And if you have a question or whatever, ask them. They're, they don't bite. They don't bite. These authors don't bite. They, they actually love hearing from folks that are interested in their books. So, And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. Final quote. My inspiration for this book comes from all the legacy organizations that have tremendous talent, assets, and histories, but just haven't yet found a successful path to the customer love that they need in order to thrive. I'm also inspired thinking about the customers of these organizations who often desperately want them to adapt to meet modern needs and are waiting less and less patiently for it to happen. Lastly, I am always in awe of the courageous executives at many of these companies who make it their personal mission to drive the innovation and transformation that are needed to win the love and increased business of digital customers. These leaders face enormous headwinds and often lay their jobs on the line in an effort to save their companies. My message to these heroes is that you absolutely can succeed if you have sufficient determination and follow the right process. This book will give you a proven process. You will need to bring the determination. The book is Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. The author is Howard Tiersky. Howard, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for reading the book so thoroughly. I'm quite impressed. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, the new Ahrefs Webmaster Tools, which monitor your website's SEO health, backlinks, and organic rankings for free. It's a very advanced free SEO tool that will scan your site and prioritize precisely what you need to fix to improve your search results. And it's so easy to use, why even a podcast host can use it. Check it out at hrefs.com slash A-W-T. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com slash A-W-T. You can also find a link to it at this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com along with a video that shows you how it works. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.